Black executives have hit a ceiling in corporate America. There are only four Black CEOs running Fortune 500 companies. And further down in the ranks, the stats don't get much better. Black Americans hold just 3% of senior roles in all U.S. companies that have 100 or more employees. Research still suggests that climbing the corporate ladder for many Black professionals still leads to experience with a glass ceiling or, in some cases, a concrete ceiling. Dr. Adia Wingfield is a professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. And she says corporations are suffering from this lack of diversity at the top. Having this disconnect between the highest ranks of organizations and the workers and citizens who comprise an increasingly large segment of our population is a disconnect that doesn't serve us well as a society. Earlier this year, after George Floyd was killed, corporate leaders put out statements in support of Black Lives Matter, and they pledged to hire and promote more Black employees. But for many Black workers, that concrete ceiling remains. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Thursday, October 1st. Coming up on the show, why there are still so few Black leaders in corporate America. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Adia has been researching race in the workplace for decades. And one of the common reasons she's been given for why there are so few Black executives is that there simply aren't enough qualified Black workers. But the data show pretty conclusively that there certainly are workers who are available, who are interested in and with support, grooming, resources, and attention, would really thrive in a lot of these workplaces. In fact, there's a great study from a few years ago that shows that even among Black women with MBAs from Harvard, they're still likely to be underrepresented in the top ranks of these organizations. And an MBA from Harvard is about as highly qualified as you can get in these spaces. That study showed that only 13% of Black women who've graduated from Harvard Business School made it to the most senior executive positions. President, CEO, managing director, or partner. 13%. That's compared to 40% for non-Black Harvard MBAs. So I think the assumptions are that people aren't there who can fill these roles or people don't have the skill or the talent, but that isn't backed up by the data. So if there are enough qualified Black professionals, why aren't they getting the top jobs? Adia's research shows that as Black people try to move up in their careers, they face a lot of roadblocks. My research has indicated that those roadblocks can come in a number of areas. For one thing, often those roadblocks have to do with perceptions of who seems to fit some 
unspoken but pretty clearly imagined ideas of who belongs in leadership roles. And often those ideas are not compatible with Black workers. Research has shown, for example, that Black men are perceived to lack soft skills of being congenial, of being amiable, of being people who are easy to get along with, even when that's not necessarily a reality. Talisa Yancey is an executive who understands these misperceptions well. She's the chief operating officer of American Family Insurance. As an African-American executive or an employee, we often struggle with how much of yourself do you bring to work from simple things like what does my hair look like to how do I present myself in the world? Do I soften how I speak so nobody thinks I'm an angry Black woman when I'm really a passionate Black woman? And I love what it is to be an African-American. I love who we are and what we've accomplished in this country. But sometimes your skin becomes a burden. And that burden does not give you the grace and the relationship that may come to you if you were not a person of color. Talisa has grappled her entire career with how her race affects her position in predominantly white corporate America, starting as an entry-level employee at Ford Motor Company. How did you feel like being Black at Ford impacted your time there? I think being Black at Ford impacted my time in subtle ways, not necessarily in large ways that disenfranchised me. So the older African-American leaders who had come before me would sort of pull you to a side and tell you about how lucky you were to be here and that that luck is not necessarily truly chance, but because of the work you put in. And that for someone else to come after you, we needed to individually and collectively show up, get a lot done, work harder, faster, better, stronger than others if you could. So in that sense, I would submit to you that my time at Ford taught me the secret code that we share as African-American leaders. And that code is that you do not work just for yourself. You work for everybody who came before you and everybody who will potentially come after you. These Black leaders at Ford also helped Talisa see a future for herself at the company. When I begin to see leaders of color that look like me, I begin to see people who live lives that I, quite frankly, did not necessarily imagine for myself. But when you are invited to the home of someone who looks like you, and then you begin to appreciate that I can be on the same path as them, you begin to have a whole new canvas upon which you can paint and build a career. And those senior leaders who pulled you aside, was that a formal mentorship program or was that just like... I see you and the direction you're going, and I have some wisdom I want to pass along. It was more informal. I see you and the direction you're going, and I want to invest in you. I want to show you the ropes. I want to make your path easier than my path. These kinds of mentor relationships are proven to help workers rise through the ranks. But often, the cycle of mentorship or sponsorship perpetuates white leadership at companies. A 2019 study found that 71% of senior executives say they select individuals to sponsor who are the same race or gender as they are. Adia says that just as having mentors is key to advancing at a company, the opposite is also true. If someone lacks mentorship, 
they're likely to leave a company. I was part of a research study which showed that many Black workers lacked the support and the encouragement and the relationship building from their white superiors that is integral for advancement into high-status roles. So what we end up seeing in some cases from that data and from others are that Black workers ascend to a certain point and simply stall out, or in other cases, Black workers ascend to a certain point and become more interested in leaving the environments where they are in altogether. Talisa left Ford after 20 years to take a vice president position at Burger King. She joined as the company's highest-ranking Black executive at the time. But she stayed for only seven months. Burger King was a different experience for me because all of a sudden I knew that I did not have my network of people who had grown me up, who had supported me, who knew me, who were willing to give me grace, who were willing to share with me the things that are unwritten rules in that environment. So I was very quickly uncomfortable in that space and lonely to some degree. I very much felt like an outsider there. Burger King's parent company said it recently pledged to have women and people of color in at least half of its final round interviews for corporate jobs. The company says Talisa's experience, quote, only further reinforces the need for this type of commitment. Talisa had reached the senior leadership level at a major company, but she found that the bigger job without the right support was unsustainable. And so one of my Ford mentors, who I still talk to a couple times a week, so he's more like a friend, and my other father, I call him my corporate father, versus my dad, who's very working class, and um, someone who I'm really proud of. But Jerry is his name. Jerry told me that I want you to understand that this is a lonely pursuit. Leadership is lonely, and more lonely when you are a person of color. After the break, how some companies are trying to make leadership less lonely for Black Americans. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Voice API, you get comprehensive call analytics, virtual assistance, automated speech recognition, and text-to-speech benefits across multiple languages. Developers can add smart voice functionalities into your app, giving your customers an easier way to reach you. And you can start collecting real-time data to drive more meaningful engagement to move your business forward. Learn more at Vonage.com. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Dr. Adia Wingfield says that the challenges Black employees face both inside and outside the office are often totally invisible to their white peers. There's, for a long time, not been a clear level of understanding of just how much and how 
comprehensively, race has an impact on so many aspects of our outcomes in life, whether it's getting to a school that offers robust educational opportunities, to getting a job, to getting good health care, to getting treated equitably and fairly by the police and the criminal justice system. But many white Americans for a long time have been unaware of those disparities. I think that's a big part of why there's such a disconnection between what the perception and the reality look like. This stark disconnect came up for Talisa a few years ago. It was the night before July 4th, and she got a call from her husband. He's a musician and was out of town for a gig. He started talking very quickly about the fact that there were blue lights behind him. The police officer turned around to come follow him, and he just wanted me to listen to the conversation. And he wasn't sure why he was being pulled over because he wasn't speeding or anything. Talisa listened on the phone while a cop pulled her husband over and yelled at him to get out of the car. For a while, she couldn't hear her husband because he was face down on the road. And I have to sit on the phone call and listen to that, and I'm looking at my son who is running around playing, and he walks in the room and says, Mommy, why are you crying? Because there's just one little tear rolling down my eyes. Because at that moment, it became very real to me that despite the fact that my husband has a degree from the University of Michigan and is well-trained in his craft of music, and that we were living our version of the quote-unquote American dream and had achieved some stuff, At that very moment, I realized that you can't just outrun the fact that there is this dynamic in our country around race. Our experiences cannot be out-achieved. Talisa's husband's encounter with the police left a mark. A week later, Talisa went to a diversity and inclusion training at work. The group went through an exercise called the Privilege Walk. Everyone lined up shoulder to shoulder. Then participants took a step forward if they had certain privileges, like if they graduated from college or grew up in a two-parent home. It's an exercise to sort of show you how some people are more privileged than others, even though we stand in the room together. And people were moved by this exercise, but I was not, because the intent of it is very real but it's very safe and it's a very safe environment. And I intended to not say a word about the experience I had had the previous weekend. Then someone asked her how she felt about the exercise. And that's when I said, I said I wasn't going to talk about this, guys, but here's what happened over this past weekend. And so this feels a little hollow to me because I spent exactly 57 minutes on a phone call listening to my husband on the eve of our nation's so-called birthday, I was taught that we still have a lot of things that need to be fixed in this country. So I'm really glad that we're working on this stuff as a company. And I really hope we're really serious about it because it's real for people like me. And so by the time I'm done talking, my coworkers are very empathetic. So I work with great people and appalled, and some people want to go out and fix it, and what what police department was that, and what can we do about it, which is not why I shared it. I shared it just because this notion of privilege or the lack of privilege, or the, in my opinion, the lack of grace that you're given just because of your race in some circles was very real and very raw for me at that particular moment. Another raw moment for Talisa came this year, after the killing of George Floyd. 
Her company was having discussions about race in the workplace and how white employees could be allies. And she got a message from her CEO, who is white. He texted me to say, I think it's time to move beyond allyship. And I texted him back and said, I agree. What do you think the word is? He says, we need to be co-conspirators with each other, Talisa. We need to be co-conspirators in creating the future. And you'll hear in all of these conversations around corporate America about African-Americans don't want you to do anything for them. They just want to shop. They want to be at the table. They want an equal opportunity. They want a chance to be in the room. And they want to do the work as well. But you can't do it alone. We have to decide that we are going to conspire together to create the world that we want to live in. As chief operating officer, Talisa has a lot of opportunity to conspire for change. She's now in the position that her mentors at Ford were. She can create new pathways for Black employees. Recently, she was running the hiring process for an open role at her company. She had just interviewed a Black woman when her white boss asked her how it went. I go, well, so-and-so did okay, but blah, 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 and blah. And she doesn't have this experience and that experience and that experience. And he said, but why does she have to? And I said, well, because she is Black. And you know that we have to work twice as hard, stay twice as long. And, and I gave him this whole thing that I have, I have lived with as my burden my entire career. And he leaned on the table and leaned forward to me and said, but why do you have to, Talisa? Mm-hmm. And I said, because that is the tax that we have as executives of color, as African-American executives. And he said, but you are the boss now. You don't have to put that tax on anybody. And I am your boss, and I will not let you put that tax on anybody else. And you can do it differently because you now sit in this office and you sit in this company. And we want you to be very, very deliberate about how you select talent and give that person the same shot that you would give somebody else, which I thought was magical. That's all for today, Thursday, October 1st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.